0: Jeremiah chapter 3 tonight and maybe even a tiny bit of chapter 4 if we get weird. I want to correct a misunderstanding, a misapprehension that I heard floating about. The ice cream social that Pastor Rob has been announcing that the seniors are sponsoring Three weeks from tonight. That is in addition to normal Wednesday night, not in place of. So it'll be a it'll be a both and. I will try to teach short that evening, um, but it's going to be study and and snackage. Next week, uh, Chris Flynn, Pastor Chris from Calvary Chapel Hutchinson, Luke's assistant pastor, is going to be here good friend good teacher has a neat message that the Lord has given him from revelation to share um, it's an it's you can pray for me pray for me and Anne it's going to be a wacky couple weeks um, tomorrow Hector and I both actually head up to the conference in Johnson County We're there through Saturday um, back Sunday Lord willing will be, Um, pushing forward in Acts chapter 20 Um, but then Ann and I leave on vacation so Pastor Chris will be covering next Wednesday and Pastor Josh is going to slide over from Calvary of the Ozarks and uh, he and Stephanie and the kids will be here uh, a week from Sunday but tonight is Jeremiah 3 and a little bit of Jeremiah 4. Last week we began Jeremiah's first message to Judah, his first sermon, if you want to call it that. Chapter 1 of Jeremiah was Jeremiah's called to ministry. Chapter 2 is really the beginning of his ministry, the beginning of the delivery of the message of conviction that God told him in calling him would be his primary message focus. And last week, we heard God through Jeremiah speak an indictment. The tone, the substance, was God the prosecuting attorney? God, as we've seen him show up in other prophetic books. These are the charges, and the evidence is overwhelming. Another way to read chapter two, and we mentioned this last week, was God setting forth grounds for for divorce. It, it seems alien to us today in our culture, but some of us are old enough to remember even in the U.S., there was a time when you needed to present grounds for divorce before the court would grant you one. Well, um, obviously, in Jeremiah's day, that was the norm, and that tone and content also fit. God, the, the aggrieved husband, putting forth undeniable evidence of spiritual adultery that entitled him before the law to a divorce, a divorce from his wife, Judah, which is not, as we cross over to chapter 3 tonight, which is not an option God says that he's eager to pursue. He's entitled to it, but he's not eager to pursue it. Chapter 3, verse 1, they say if a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's, may he return to her again? It's a rhetorical question. The answer under the law was no. Would not that land be greatly polluted if such a thing were allowed? But you've played the harlot with many lovers, yet return to me. Says the Lord. So the reference here is to Deuteronomy 24, the first four verses. Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. If a husband under Levitical law divorced his wife, he was forbidden to circle back and remarry her if she subsequently remarried another man. Even if that second husband divorced her, she still couldn't go back to her first husband, even if her second husband died. They couldn't be remarried because under Levitical law, that would make a mockery out of marriage. That would defile God's people. And that's what God is making reference to here in verse 1. God is saying, I've got grounds for divorce, but that would have permanent implications for our relationship. So let's not do that. Let's not take that step. Let's not cross that line. How about return to me now? Judah has cheated on God repeatedly and yet God says, I am still willing to forgive if, and this is where God is going, if, Judah, you repent. Repent of what? You know, the first conversation that I have with people caught in sin, almost always The first reaction is confusion, either genuine confusion or feigned confusion. What are you talking about? I don't understand. What do you mean? You're not. You're you're not. You're not talking about me. I am, says God. Verse two. Lift up your eyes to the desolate heights and see. Where have you not lain with men? By the road you've sat for them, like an Arabian in the wilderness. And you've polluted the land with your harlotries and your your uh, your wickedness. God is saying a couple things. He's saying, "Look around, travel through Judah. Where are there not shrines? Where can you not find altars to false gods? They're everywhere." It's, it's, it's like it's like Arab nomads, Arab bandits hiding, lying in wait to attack trade caravans, ready to jump out. You walk around Judah. There's a there's an idol ready to jump out behind every bush. The land testifies to your harlotry, and God continues in verse three. Your land has suffered for it. Verse three. Therefore, the showers have been withheld, and there has been no latter rain. You've had a harlot's forehead. You refuse to be ashamed. In Deuteronomy, remember, God promises that if his people turn from him, one of the ways that God would respond would be to dry up the clouds. In an agricultural society dependent upon the harvest, drought was one of the fastest ways to get the people's attention. I've done that, God says. And the sense is that he's done it repeatedly. Repeatedly, consecutive years, repeatedly, twice in the same year, either way, both ways, extremely problematic. But more problematic is the fact that it hasn't worked. Judah, verse 3, refuses to take the hint, refuses to heed the lesson, refuses to be ashamed. Judah won't acknowledge her sin, and because she won't acknowledge her sin, she obviously won't repent. She refuses to admit that there's anything for her to repent of. Verse four, will you not from this time cry to me, God is saying. Cry out, my father, you're the guide of my youth. Will you remain angry forever? Will you keep it to the end? Behold, you've spoken and done evil things as you were able. Your cries, Judah... Uh, you you, you cry, God, you're good, God, you're faithful, God, you're merciful, God, you've always delivered, God, you're so gracious, won't you pour out your grace again, come save us again, except, this is God's point, verse 4 and 5, it all means nothing. Judah's pleas are worthless, they're meaningless, why? Because Judah doesn't intend to stop sinning. She's saying all the right things without any of the right actions. Again, using the analogy of adultery, Judas committing spiritual adultery, running around with other gods. And, And what God is saying is, you're like a cheating wife calling her husband saying, please don't leave, please don't file the papers, please don't be angry, please stop talking about divorce. It doesn't mean anything if you're calling from your lover's apartment. Sunday, we talked about the gospel at the, at the end of the message. What does Paul say the gospel is? What does scripture say everywhere that the gospel is? Two things, repentant belief, Turning back to God implicitly means turning away from wherever our attention was other than God. Otherwise, it's just words. Verse 6, God continues... He asks, did you learn nothing from Israel? Did you learn nothing from your cousins to the north? Verse 6, the Lord also said to me in the days of Josiah the king, have you seen what backsliding Israel has done? She's gone up on every mountain and every green tree and there played the harlot. And I said, after she'd done all of those things, return to me. But she did not. God is reminding Judah through Jeremiah, Israel sinned the same sins that you're now sinning a hundred years ago. And I said the same thing to Israel that I'm saying to you now. Israel didn't listen. And her treacherous sister Judah, still verse 7, saw it. Judah, you watched all of this. You you saw this go down. You observed our interaction. You were privy to my exhortation. You saw the repercussions and you've learned all the wrong lessons. Verse 8. Therefore I saw for all the causes for which backsliding Israel had committed adultery, I had put her away the northern kingdom, the northern ten tribes, and given her a certificate of divorce, yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but went and played the harlot also. So it came to pass through her casual harlotry that she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and trees, idols, carved of rock and of wood, and yet for all of this, her treacherous sister Judah has not turned to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, says the Lord. Her words profess me, her works deny me. Which, and God said this last week, which makes Judah's sin all the much worse in God's eyes. All the worse than Israel's, because Judah, unlike Israel, had the example saw the whole thing, the whole sin spiral play out, and still ignored it. Verse 11, Then the Lord said to me, Backsliding Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. How is that possible? Israel was apostate from day one. Israel from day one walked away from the true and living God, never looked back, never really pretending that they were anything other than idol worshipers. How is Judah worse? Well, that's exactly the point. Judah's a hypocrite. Because Judah, unlike Israel, pretended that she was better and should have been better and at times, at times even was better because Judah had the temple. Judah had seasons of genuine worship. Judah had some good kings. So intermittently, Yeah, Judah was better than Israel. But Judah's downfall was she kept thinking she was better than Israel even after she wasn't, even once she was corrupted by sin. Pride. Judah was convinced that she was better than Israel even while doing the same things. So God, verse 12, God says to Judah, through Jeremiah. Go and proclaim, actually, God says to Jeremiah, go and proclaim these words to the north. And say, Return, backsliding Israel, says the Lord. I won't cause my anger to fall on you, for I'm merciful, says the Lord. I will not remain angry forever. Only Just do this one thing. Acknowledge your iniquity, that you've transgressed against the Lord your God, and you've scattered your charms to alien deities under every green tree, and you have not obeyed my voice, says the Lord. Now this is weird. This is strange, because God is saying, Hey, Jeremiah, go preach to Israel, except there is no Israel anymore. Israel was carried off by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. Jeremiah's ministry begins in 626. Why is God saying, hey, go preach to those ten tribes that aren't there anymore a century later? Now, different commentators have different theories. One is, yeah, the tribes and mass were carried off, but there were still individuals living in the north there were still some people populating that real estate. God was sending Jeremiah, go preach to them. Another, another theory is that God was saying, hey, the tribes from the north, the ten tribes who populated the north, some of the people from those ten tribes ended up in the territory of Judah and Benjamin. So, hey, preach to the, to the people from those ten tribes even though they're not in the north anymore. Another possibility is that this is God reminding Judah that this was God's heart for the north. That even in Israel's sin and wickedness and wanton rebellion and flagrant adultery, God said and said and said some more, repent and we can be us again. I might lean that way. Because verse 14, God repeats his plea, this time to Judah, return, O backsliding children, says the Lord, for I'm married to you, still married to you. I will take you from one city and two from a family, and I'll bring you to Zion. This time there's no reference to the north. In fact, I'm pretty sure this isn't the north that God is talking to. I'm pretty sure that that verse 14 is directed to Judah, whatever you think about the two verses that came before it. Because, still verse 14, God says, I will bring you to Zion, and I will give you shepherds according to my heart, who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. Okay, grab something and hang on because we just took a turn, didn't we? What just happened? Yeah. Say that louder. Yeah, we just we just changed time frames, didn't we? What's our clue? When God's people return to him, when he brings them back to Zion, what will be true? They'll have shepherds according to God's own heart. Question, when has that been true? at any time since 626 B.C. Maybe if you turn your head and you want to see it in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, maybe, but I don't think that that's what God is talking about. I think he's talking about something that hasn't happened yet, like Don was saying. Why do I think that? Keep reading. It shall come to pass, verse 16, when you're multiplied and increased in the land in those days, in those days... That's always a clue, right? That they will say no more the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind, nor shall they remember it, nor shall they visit it, nor shall it be made any more. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all the nations shall be gathered to it, to the name of the Lord, to Jerusalem. No more shall they follow the dictates of their evil hearts. That clinches it, right? If we weren't sure before, verses 16 and 17, settle it. In those days, we're talking about the Millennial Kingdom here. When the Ark of the Covenant doesn't come to mind. No one thinks about it or talks about it. They don't even watch Indiana Jones movies that have it. Why? Because the Ark of the Covenant pictured who? Jesus. Ark of the Covenant was a picture, was a type of Jesus. Why do we need the Ark? when we have Jesus where? On the throne of the Lord in Jerusalem, where all of the nations are gathered and none of the nations are following the dictates of their evil hearts. Those things have never been true, but we just got done with a study in Isaiah that tells us that all of those things will be true when Jesus returns and rules and reigns for a thousand years in Jerusalem. Which, let's bring it all the way around now, verse 18, gives us a clearer understanding of what God was having Jeremiah say to the north back in verse 11. Verse 18, in those days, still future tense, the house of Judah shall walk with the house of Israel, and they shall come together out of the land of the north, the traditional direction from which Israel's enemies invade, to the land that I've given as an inheritance to your fathers. God hasn't divorced Judah. And what God is saying is, hey, when Judah and God reconcile, that reconciliation will extend to all of Israel, northern tribes and southern tribes, which makes sense. Because when God returns, when Jesus returns, at the end of the tribulation, who returns to him? It's not tribes. It's not territories. It's not political entities. It's individual believers, right? It's messianic believers who have rejected the mark of the beast, who have instead called upon the name of the Lord, who have cried out with the words of Isaiah 53, who have confessed their sin and professed Jesus. How can such a thing happen happen? Verse 19. That's what, God, that's what God asks rhetorically. How can I put you among the children and give you a beautiful heritage of the host of nations? How can such a thing happen? For centuries, people couldn't imagine that it would happen. That's why we have so many commentators trying to bend and twist and interpret these verses on the assumption that it can't be Judah, that it can't be Israel because God's done with Israel. How can God bless Israel who rejected him, who rejected him in Jeremiah's day, who rejects him again in Jesus' day? How can I forgive a Judah? How can I forgive a people who only pretends to love me? Answer, still verse 19, And I said, you shall call me my father and not turn away from me. How can God forgive Israel, restore Israel, welcome Israel into a relationship with him? What did we just read? Through a new covenant. A covenant in which God is not only king and creator, but father. Remember how Jesus blew everybody's minds in Matthew 6 when he told the disciples, this is how you pray our Father in heaven. Father? We don't get to call God Father. He's our creator. He's our king. He's the most high. Jesus is, yeah, yeah, yeah. But through the new covenant, he's more. He's Abba. And that's the relationship that I'm going to purchase with my blood. That's the relationship that one day Israel will enter into. God refers to the old covenant at the beginning of the chapter when he says, hey, possession of the land, that's contingent upon obedience. And at various times in history, Israel is put out of the land for their disobedience. That was their contract. That was their covenant with God all the way back in Deuteronomy. But one day Israel will be restored to the land and when they're restored, they'll be restored permanently. Not as a function of their obedience. Today they're in the land after a fashion, but you can't really call them obedient. Israel is mostly an agnostic nation. But when God restores Israel fully, the way that we read about at the end of Isaiah, it's not a function of obedience, it's a function of relationship, a relationship that you and I today enjoy, a relationship by which we get to call the Most High God, Father. Father. When does that relationship begin for Israel? At the end of the tribulation. What makes it possible? Jesus, but what else? What makes it possible? What is the prerequisite, the precondition for Israel accessing and enjoying the forgiveness that Jesus offers it's the, yeah, it's the thing thats that, that Judah has been withholding here. The thing that God has been highlighting here. Repentance. Repentance. Verse 20. Surely as a wife treacherously departs from her husband, so you have dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel. God here repeats the indictment. He's like a prosecuting attorney. He's he's, he's recapping the charges. These these are the grounds for divorce. And the response, verse 21, A voice was heard on the desolate heights, weeping and supplications of the children of Israel. For they perverted their way. They've forgotten the Lord their God. How do we read that? Commentators disagree here. There's a lot of fighting over these next couple of verses because there's a couple possibilities. One is that this is Judah and Jeremiah's day weeping, crying out from the high places, which were the places of idol worship. These were the places where shrines were built in the desolate heights. Judah is weeping and, and crying and their prayers are bouncing off of the sky because they aren't sincere. They're not repentant. And and that's one possibility. Another way to read this would be to be looking forward and reading this as long-term prophecy and genuine repentance when Jewish believers from the desolate heights of Petra where they've taken refuge from antichrist persecutions, are weeping and crying out and realizing their perversion and rebellion and ignorance, and they're confessing with sincere hearts. They're broken, the way that we sang about at the beginning of service. Scholars disagree, and they disagree violently about this. Is this short-term worldly sorrow to which God says, let me know when you're serious? Or is this long-term prophecy of genuine repentance? You know what I'm going to say. Why not both? Why not both? Because historically, they're both true. Historically and prophetically, but prophecy is future history. Historically, they're both true. Short-term, in Jeremiah's day, Judah did not repent. How do we know? Because God brought judgment. Short term, in Jeremiah's day, Judah did not repent in any lasting way. They continued to call God, God, professing to be his people while continuing in their sin. And in doing so, that begs punishment, right? And so God chastises them and removes them from the land. How could he not? You claim to be someone's wife and continue committing adultery, eventually everyone just acknowledges, okay, you've left the marriage. Let's just, let's just make it official. So so short-term, verse 21, yeah. If, if that's short-term, that is cries of worldly sorrow. It's regret that actions have consequences. Too bad, so sad. And, and, and whether or not that's what the Holy Spirit intends with those verses, historically, that's true. That's what happened. Long-term, though, we also know that one day... We know from Isaiah and elsewhere. There'll come a day when a remnant of Israel cries out in true repentance from the rock city of Petra, from desolate heights. There's a time when God, when Israel hears God say, verse 22, return you backsliding children and I'll heal your backslidings and believes him and says, indeed we do come to you for you are the Lord our God, truly In vain is salvation hoped for from the hills and from the multitude of mountains. Truly in the Lord our God and in our Lord God alone is the salvation of Israel. It's possible that what what Judah says and doesn't mean in the face of the Babylonians, a remnant of Israel will say and mean in the face of Antichrist's army. Verse 23, truly in vain is salvation hoped for from the hills and from the multitude of mountains. Truly in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. For shame has devoured the labor of our fathers from our youth, their flocks and their herds, their sons and their daughters. We lie down and our shame and our reproach covers us. For we've sinned against the Lord our God, we and our fathers, from our youth even to this day, and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. Now, if I wanted to argue against myself, if I wanted to say, nah, it's, it, it, it's not really a both end," There isn't really a long-term to this. I would say there's no mention of Jesus in what we just read. And that's true. But it's still a wonderful prayer of repentance. And that's still really important, right? Because, again, what is the gospel? Repent. And believe, and what we just read sounds like repentance. It doesn't happen in Judah's day, and you know, in, in Jeremiah's day. In Jeremiah's day, they don't renounce—not fully, not forever—the worship of false gods on hills and mountains. Worship of Baal and Moloch and the Ashtoreth remains Judah's shame. But the repentance does come on that future day when they repent of sending their Savior, their Messiah, to die on a hill, on a mountain called Calvary. And judgment, shame, sent them out of the land in 70 AD and eventually brings Antichrist against them. It's a chewy passage. And if you disagree how I'm reading it, you're probably right. But I I can't shake the fact, on the one hand, Jeremiah is undeniably speaking to Judah of his day, and yet there's an unquestionable, incontrovertible reference, verse 19, to the new covenant. Father. That's neon flashing lights. And if that's not enough, in this day. That's the phrase that pays, right? That cues us that we're looking forward. And the description of Jerusalem in that day, Jesus in Jerusalem, that has to be long-term. So I read it as a both-and. But as we cross over to chapter 4, just a a few verses as we wrap up, the the, the section here concludes with words that I don't think are limited to short-term or long-term. They're universal and eternal. If you return, O Israel, says the Lord. I think it's provocative. He says Israel and not Judah. Return to me. And if you'll put your abominations out of my sight, then you shall not be moved. And you shall swear the Lord lives in truth and judgment and in righteousness. The nations shall bless themselves in him and in him they shall glory. For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground and do not sow among thorns circumcise yourselves to the Lord, and take away the foreskins of your heart, you men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury come forth like fire and burn so that no one can quench it because of the evil of your doings. You had good words, God says. Speaking of verses 23 to 25, perhaps speaking of of those words of repentance earlier in the chapter, you had good words. That's the right idea for sure. But for repentance to be real, for it to be genuine, words have to translate into action. Actions have to align with those words. It's the same way that, that chapter 3 began, right? Chalk is cheap. Returning to me, God emphasizes as we close. Returning to me, chapter 4, verse 1, means putting abominations out of sight, out of reach. It means renouncing idols. It means, it means walking away from sin and not looking back. Metaphor of spiritual adultery, it means not going to see her again. Not saying that you're going to be friends. Not getting together once in a while for old time's sake. No, it means being done. It means burning your ship. If you come back to me, God says to Judah, you won't be moved. Literally, you won't be carried off. There's a promise there. Come back to me, and we don't have to do the whole Babylonian captivity thing. But more broadly, God is saying, hey, return to me, and you'll be rooted in me, established in me, grounded in me. You won't want or need anything other than me. I will be your sufficiency if you repent. It's interesting, verse 3, it's a personal call to the men of Judah and Jerusalem. It's an individual call. It's not to the nation, it's to to persons. You choose, and you choose, and you choose, and you choose to return to the Lord. How do we do that? God says you break up the fallow ground. What's fallow ground? It's cropland that was previously fruitful that's not been cultivated in some time. Break it up, which implies work. It's not going to be easy to plow that ground that hasn't been plowed for a season. If your heart has been hardened, it's going to take time to break through. Be willing to do the work. Be willing to receive the word. Don't sow among thorns. That's a rich picture, right? Because thorns back in Genesis are a picture of sin thorns in Matthew 13 and the kingdom parables are a picture of the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. And they both work. Break up the the hardness of your heart. Be willing to receive the word and don't ask the word to compete with your sin. And don't ask the word to compete with, with the alluring trinkets and trash of the world. Don't let either one Choke the truth out. Choke the love out. Choke the relationship out. Verse 4, God switches his metaphors. Circumcise your heart. Love me with a pure heart. Not with words, but with actions. Devote yourself to me. If we're looking for an application tonight, we're not going to do better than that. Because that's a good good roadmap for anyone to follow in any time. Short-term, long-term, or anywhere in between. Anyone who finds themselves far from God. Anyone who wakes up and realizes their rebellion against God. Obviously, we don't have to worry about the destruction of souls described in verse 4. Not if we've made peace with God through Jesus. Not if we've entered into the new covenant in his blood although there's still a warning there of fiery judgment against our works, against our ministries, against the fruit of our lives, if, if the things we do, we, we do for ourselves, if the things that we do, we do while in an adulterous relationship. Jesus warns, you're going to stand before the, the Bema seat and your works will be judged and works done other than for God's name and God's strength will burn. So there's, there's a warning here, there's an application here, warning against the, the, having a saved soul but a wasted life, right? How do we avoid that? There's a roadmap right here in these verses. Return, God says, verse 1. Believe that you can and decide that you want to. Repent. Put abominations out of sight, out of reach, out of your life. Burn your ship. Don't give yourself a back door. Don't give yourself a backup plan. What if this Jesus thing doesn't work? Decide that it's going to work and decide that you're not going to allow yourself a, a return trip. Return to God, verse 1. How? Return to His Word, verse 3. And let His Word break up the, the fallow ground. Let, his, let, let the love of His Word work against the hardness of the heart. Expect it to be work, do the work. And determine not to let sin or the world choke out the beauty and the truth of God's word. Pull out those weeds. Weed the garden. That the word of God would have room to to grow and live and push everything else out and let your life be dedicated to the Lord, consecrated. Circumcise your flesh, God says in verse 4. Cut out anything that's of flesh and be devoted to God, heart and soul, mind and strength. Lord, we we thank you that we can't go far in your word without reading of your mercy. The warnings of, of your judgment, of your justice, of your wrath, they're real. And boy, are they sobering. And, and, and how long it took for us to grasp the reality of hell. The urgency of salvation. But then, Lord, how easily we lapse into easy believism. And we don't pursue sanctification. And we allow weeds to to crowd you out. We allow our hearts to be hardened. We indulge other gods, other idols, while continuing to profess you. Lord, thank you that that your message tonight is one of repentance. It's a message from the heart of a long-suffering God saying, Come home, there's forgiveness. Come home, there's a new beginning. Come home, let's start over. Lord, I pray for anyone who needs to hear those words, who needs to take those steps. I pray for all of us when we need to hear those words, when we need to take those steps. There's no one who doesn't have those seasons, those those realizations. Thank you that you're who you are. that your call to repentance is unceasing and the promise of your power is never-ending. Pour out your grace, Lord. Revive your people.